After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Robert Thurman. And I, I just, uh, I, I have to say, with Robert, it's a love affair that uh, got initiated <laughs> by our very, very close mutual friend, Krishna Das. At a, a, you won't remember this, Bob. We first met at a His Holiness Dalai Lama event uh, in New York, I believe, many, many, many moons ago. I think I knew at the Beacon we, Theater. Yeah, yeah, we were sitting in those. Yeah, tables. I remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I do remember well, that. Yeah. I sort of remember that. I remember seeing you there. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I think you've trimmed your beard since then. Yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so happy to have uh, you here, Bob. And uh, one of the things that uh, I mentioned to to Bob. Uh, uh, before doing this podcast was uh, since we have not really communicated at all since Ramdas left at the end of last year. And right. uh, one of the things I wanted was to get Bob has known uh, Ramdas well before most of us uh, when he was Richard Alpert. And I, yeah. I just want to get some um, a little bit of the story of your meeting him and uh, how he came into your life and and the the how that evolved all the way to these retreats in the last few years that uh, you did in Maui and uh, yeah can we can we do wow, that sure sure this will be such a, a thrill for me yeah well when I was undergrad at um, at uh, Harvard. Um, I read uh, Aldous Huxley. Actually, Aldous Huxley came to a theater performance I did where I played Troilus in Troilus and Cressida. I didn't know you were an actor and then, too. I was then. I was had aspiration to do that and intention, and actually more to be a playwright than actor, but I did act in that one performance. And uh, at the inauguration of the Loeb Theater on uh, Brattle Street in Cambridge, a Harvard uh, thing, and... Uh, uh, Aldous Huxley was there at the opening of Old Trolls and Cressida, and the, I, there's a terrible speech at the end of that where Trollus laments the fall of Troy and his loss of Cressida, and and uh, Huxley wept apparently in my delivery. Oh, really? And he and he came backstage to tell me that, and he was really nice. It was my one meeting with him, and then I was reading Henri Michaud in French about mescaline. So I discovered the psychedelic world. I mm. discovered the the the, um, the non-conceptual understandings that you're thrown into having to kind of deal with experiences through it with um, 
with psychedelics and naturally then was interested in uh, Richard and um, Tim and Ralph, the, tri the triumvirate that was working at Harvard at that time. Although I didn't get any stuff from him. He, you know, they were blamed as if they had turned on some undergraduates, but it was circulating already yeah, in the undergraduate body and it wasn't really there. They, they didn't really, they had uh, some experiments with some people, I think. Uh, very small doses, actually. We considered them somewhat square, actually. That, really? Uh, yes. <laughs> because they were into, like, you know, set and setting and moderate and yeah. observation and small doses. They were being very responsible, uh, you know, psychologists doing their research. And we were taking big doses of different things and riding motorcycles and listening, <laughs> listening to Joan Baez uh, <laughs> singing at the Cafe Mount Auburn on Ann Auburn Street behind the sort of off a block away from Mass Ave, you know, sort of, we had a whole scene. There was a whole scene. And I was, I was already married to my first wife at that time. And I was a young madman. And um, <laughs> then in the middle of that, you know, I lost a, that, an eye, which was really lucky because I, uh, I could have lost my life. I was a bit wild driving and motorcycling mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. And, um, so a garage accident, lost the eye clumsily doing something in a garage. And then, uh, then that made me want to drop out of Columbia. That was a big impermanence visionary experience in itself. And um, when I came out of that, I wanted to leave Harvard. And I didn't actually necessarily want to leave that marriage, but, the, but my ex uh, wouldn't, didn't want to go with me to, to uh, India. I was going to Herman Hess in hand, Gurdjieff in hand. <laughs> Uh, Edward Conzo's President Pyramita in hand, etc. I was off for India gradually. It took a while. That was 61, fall of 61. And, um, and then I, um, the process of doing that, I stopped by uh, the Tim and um, their building. They were living in North Cambridge, I think, at that point. They hadn't gone to Newton yet. So I kind of got to know them, introduced myself to them. And there I was like one of the sort of people on the fringes of their thing. And they were kind of surprised that we were riding motorcycles while stone. <laughs> <laughs> but we've had a great time. It was a few other people, I know. And uh, What was Ramdas so, like then? Well, he was wonderful. He was, uh, you know, he was a snappy Harvard professor. He, I believe he had a green Mercedes convertible um that was you know it wasn't souped up but it was a nice green he used to ride around that and he was very well trim you know and um and cheerful and uh very of course brilliant and um you know i think he had tenure or something i believe he did at yeah. harvard hmm. and um tim did not tim was like a visiting prof and metzner was maybe a, a fellow he wasn't really on the faculty there i think at that time and they were doing, you know, they hadn't yet gotten more far out. So anyway, then I went off to India. So then I didn't see him for uh, over a year. And uh, when I came back at the end of 62, I then stopped by their Newton thing, mm. their thing in Newton. And um, I may have had a trip or two. I tripped a little bit on that pilgrimage to India. But then fairly soon after that, I um, met Geshe Wangyal instead of going back to India, and then I started studying in New Jersey. Right, your teacher. And, uh, and Richard, as you remember, he wrote about Geshe Wanga. He was almost the first big Eastern person that he met. And he, he came down to see me there, and he brought another 
fellow student of mine from Harvard who had been more involved with them while I was away and who had his issues. He had issues before he was involved with them and after. And then he thought he would, maybe the Mongolian Lama could help him, and he did somewhat help him, a man named Foster Dunlap, who was a marvelously brilliant person and so on. And that's another whole story. But anyway, that brought Richard down to the monastery, and he met the geishi, and he drove him around a little bit. And I believe he was driving him in his green Mercedes when they ran out of gas in the East Side Drive. He was taking him <laughs> somewhere, which is an incident he repeats in the Be Here Now, as I recall. But somehow he didn't really study that much with Geshe but he realized there was something special there, you know, from the East. You know, he didn't know what at that point, right? So th this is made... before Richard went to India first time. Yeah, yeah, before he went, right. Yeah. But he was still in Milburg at that time, you know. And uh, then, um, you know, various all kinds of things happened. And then uh, Tim came back with my future bride, who was his <laughs> ex-bride at that point, or about to be his ex-bride, um, Nina. And then um, and they had some things happened in, in Millbrook. And then eventually Richard decided to leave Millbrook. And then Richard went to India. And then he became no longer Richard. Where eventually he became Ramdas, right? Which was really great. And I I met him once then when I was a graduate student, and I didn't see him during my whole graduate time. When I came back from, and I didn't take any acid at all during the whole time I was a monk and with the Dalai Lama and with Geshe Wangal, because I was learning to a little bit do that with meditation, mm. like, like Richard did later. And in fact, I was so into that, that at a certain point, long after um, Ramdas was, I think while he was in India, at one point when I decided to leave the monastery, because I realized that, for, I don't want to talk too much about me, but when I decided to leave the monastery, and then I thought, well, I'm going to go, first of all, see my old friends at Millbrook, because they're in trouble now with, you know, Tim having been busted in Texas and the, all this kind of mm. taking on the government, you know, and uh, with a, with a, with a uh, trial hanging over him for pot, you know, and so on. And I said, I'm going to go get them to cool down, learn to meditate, stop taking so much illegal <laughs> and, um, and try to get them to see there's a, there's a, there's a safer and legal, more legal way at the moment. And so I went up there, and then Tim was happy to invite me there. But then things escalated. And right. at a certain point, uh, I realized they wouldn't really listen to me because they basically figured the reason I was a monk even, or had been a monk, was that I'd had a bad trip or something. And, you know, because <laughs> they were so convinced that being stoned was the doorway to enlightenment. So then just to show them, I said, well, okay, you know, turn me on and see what happens. And they did, and it was pretty far out, actually. Oh. With the kind of the kind of high dose milkwork dose that they used in those yeah. days, yeah. and with what I had studied for three or four years as a Tibetan monk, it was much more far out than earlier trips that I had. <laughs> I bet. And uh, and then they, but they still, of course, wouldn't listen to me, and I stopped worrying about it that much, and and I I didn't quite know then what to do, but luckily. Somewhere around that time, I met um, I met Nena, and then I decided I would you know then a whole thing later happened with me where I went back to school and everything, and then uh, I didn't see again Ramdas for some time, but he stopped by, 
when he was beginning his um, sort of mission around the States to see me once when he was actually fairly fresh back from Maharaji mm. and long hair and white, still wearing white dhotis and yeah. white long Indian things, big beard and very like eyes, you know, yeah, like shine, eyes. shining. Mm. And he came to visit us and uh, my kids were kind of worried <laughs> They they didn't know what he was, you know. They were like, oh, and he, because he, he was kind of flipped out. So he rushed over to hug them. If he hadn't approached them, it would have been okay. Because they were they were they'd been in India. They were only three or four years old, but they but especially the older one, boy, the boy got it, and he was like, oh, and when he when he went over to give him a big hug. So then then Randos was kind of a little freaked by that. Oh no, you know, he didn't react to my my total love. He hadn't yet, I think had enough experience being a guru a little bit to realize that you have to kind of approach people a little more carefully. Because mm. he himself was so flipped out with the joy of having discovered Maharaji yeah. and beginning to deep, dig deeper than he had. And of course, people mustn't forget, of course, about St. Ramdas, that he, when before that, he was a psychonaut, you know, Stan Groff and my term, a voyager in the mind through serious psychedelics. And he'd really been heaven and hell, you know, which I think opened him as it did for so many to then receiving the darshan and the blessings of, uh, of uh, Nimkar Alibaba. If he had been a straight square psychologist when he met Nimkar just a regular psychologist, I don't think. It would have been the same outcome, actually. And, and he says and the if, same thing. He says the yeah, same thing over yeah, and sure over. Well, for years, he kind of kept it under wraps, which was wise, because, you know, the, the the square of society was out to arrest everybody for everything, you know, like they've been doing, like they're trying to reassert themselves to do now, right? Mm -hmm. They're like arresting Black Lives Matter, the peaceful people. Yeah. And the most awful thing, but I don't know if you know that, but, you know, those stormtroopers that... Uh, Gestapo that Bill Barr sent to Portland and Seattle mm -hmm. and this yep, and that. Yep. Do, you know who they, do you know who they are? They are not just... There's a few mixed-in Homeland Security and alcohol and tobacco and firearms people like that, executive branch sort of uh, uh, MPs. But the, the harsh ones are contractors hired from Eric Prince's private Blackwater Army. Oh, I did Army. not know that. Oh and they God. are therefore beholden to nobody. And that's the brother, if people don't know that, of, of uh, De De DeVos, you know, Betsy DeVos, the horrible, uh, you know. Education, uh, yeah. So-called miseducation, yeah. indoctrination minister, let's say. And, uh, and it, so that's very dire. When that eventually, when they eventually unelected and when that comes out, that will be a major scandal. Imagine that. You dare to hire such people yeah. who are perfectly great mercenary soldiers, but they're not really into dealing with peaceful protesters. Yeah, to you know? say the least. All right, well, let, we're going to talk more about that uh, a little later. Okay, but, all right, but, all right. So, so that's it. So then, then I was, uh, you know, I saw all of Ramdas's deeds and books and really loved what he did for so many people. And, uh, you know, Mickey Lemley, who made those movies about him, you know, then made movies about Dalai Lama. So yeah. sort of I knew that. And whenever I could find Ramdas, I did. And actually, when he came back, one of the things that in that same time, actually, is when I fell in love again, when, or even more than when I originally knew him, 
when he said this wonderful thing, I thought, at a speech at Smith College during that time he visited us as a family. And um, he said he recounted how in the Bangladesh wartime, where I had met him actually, and and um, Krishna Das and Adan Goldman and Surya Das, no, Surya Das was not with them, but a bunch of them yeah. who had been in Kausani doing a retreat. And I was living in Almora at that time as a grad student. And I also saw him when he was with um, uh, Muktananda yeah. in Pune, where he had a terrible headache because he wasn't so compatible with Muktananda. Ultimately, at first, he was intrigued by him, but yeah. it wasn't Neem Karoli. It wasn't Neem Karoli. You know, Neem Karoli sent him off there because he was all into Kundalini. You know? Yeah, yeah. But power, Kundalini, power, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Kundalini gave him a headache. So luckily, he went back to Bhakti. You know? <laughs> but I saw him when he had that headache, yeah. and uh, with Muktananda, and uh, I was uh, I was not that excited about Muktananda myself. But uh, you know, I stayed out of his way. On the other hand, he was quite a forceful character, mm -hmm. and um, so I had met him then. And then, but then in this speech, which he was given, he recounted how he was so upset by the genocide of the Bengalis going on by the West Pakistanis in Bangladesh that he um, he said to Maharaji, he said, oh, that's horrible, terrible, I want to go. And, and and Krishna Das tells the story about he wanted to use his Volkswagen as an mm. ambulance mm. and go there. Probably would have perished if he had. But anyway, he, wanted, he had a good impulse to do that. And then uh, uh, in addition to discouraging him to do that, which was very practical and probably saved his life, Maharaji also said, but don't you see, it's so perfect. In other words, you know, don't get upset even by seemingly horrible, surface horrible things. And then Ramdas said back, well, okay, Guruji, it's perfect, but it stinks. Yeah, right, yeah. And I loved that. Mm. And it really reminded me, I was at the very time in Almora still, and I was very upset about what was going on there. I had various visions and fierce deities, all kinds of things trying to stop it. And then I had a dream where my old Mongolian guru, oh, he was still alive at that time, but anyway, where he appeared to me in the dream sitting on a, on a stone bench in the yard uh, by the in front of these Himalayan mountains where I was staying in retreat in, in Almora. And I was angrily shouting at him, same way, and I was saying, where's that Nirmanakaya, all the emanation bodies of the Buddha? How come he isn't emanating some UN troops or some some neutral people or some whatever, you know, to stop this killing babies in this horrible thing that's going on there? What's wrong with it? Where is that Nirmanakaya of yours sort of thing? Mm -hmm. I was challenging the, the the vision of the sort of esoteric, slightly esoteric vision, or used to be more esoteric vision, of the good guys really being in charge, actually, of the world and seeing to it that this kind of atrocities don't go on. And, um, or at least that's how I thought it was. And so I was like saying, it stinks, you know, where is it? And he didn't say anything, he didn't answer me. He didn't say, don't you see it's perfect like Maharaja did of what he did. But hey, what he did in the dream was his image became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally I was like screaming like a little mosquito at his knee level. And he was bigger than all those 27,000-foot snow-capped mountains from which you see from Almora, you know. Mm. 
mm-hmm. you know, Trishul and mm. Nanda Devi, mm. you know, the biggest mountains in Himalayan mountains in India. And, uh, and he, in other words, like, the picture is bigger than you know, sort of routine, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, and, yeah. And so I really identified with Ramdas. Mm. yes, agreeing with his guru that there must be a level on which, you know, love, Krishna, and that, and that idea would be Krishna, Rama, you know, Vishnu. He's taking care of even the ones who are dying. He's going to take care of them. Even it seems terrible what happens to them in this life, he's going to follow them through in other lives. And make it okay, you know, and and work with it. It's so, but this is temporarily can't be stopped at the at the moment. Yeah. And the bad guys who are doing the killing, their negative karmas somehow that they, they, that will also be taken care of for, yeah. over it and so on. So I, I, you know, great, but it stinks anyway for the moment. Like you know, I'm not going to just sort of be complacent about it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I fell I fell in love with him. I felt. <laughs> Whoever his teacher was, Ramdas, he was the mm. right person. Mm. And Ramdas himself was keeping keeping his right Buddha nature, you could say, Bodhisattva nature, you know, Buddha nature. And, it, and so I just said, this is great. And, you know, more power to him. So we used to, in uh, in Maui at the retreats, Ramdas would tell that story. Uh-huh. And then we had little conversations, he and I, and I, I would say, I I believe there needs to be an addendum to the story, uh, to the, it stinks, okay? And the addendum is, Neem Karoli Baba can say that, operating out of non-duality, and, and say the big picture, but we can't say that, because people uh, react and go, oh yeah, we're just supposed to sit on our ass meditating, and not take right. any action, not taking right. any action regarding any of these issues. And right now, of course, the issues around social justice, etc. And right. so he then started uh, speaking uh, speaking to that, so everybody oh, would get did. a better oh, picture of uh, what, what did he what did he say? What did he say? He he just said from limited point of view, which is where I am coming from, because I am not living in non-duality, as Neem Karoli Baba was. From that point of view, I have to always understand that I need, uh, that intellectually I understand it's all perfect. But I am not living that 100%. But I am working on that on a day-to-day basis, while at the same time I'm taking whatever actions seem appropriate to change the world in whichever small way that I can do it. Not exactly in those words, but something like that. Yes. And yes, so I that did. started a conversation that enabled people to get a little bit more of a, of an understanding of, of what uh, Maharaji was really saying, which you, you, you just elucidated a, a little bit. It's you know, right. in, in, everything gets embraced and yes. transformed and we yes. cannot understand that. Yes. Yes. Yes, and and the point is, if we if we get too fixated on the evil that's going down, we might become where we, our activism will be based on rage, and anger, and hatred of the evildoers, and then we're just adding to it, and we will not improve the situation. Yeah, exactly, and it's exactly so what it, Ramdas would would say. So, so yeah. we have to, even if we're not yet knowing that we are all actually have always been living non-duality because the non-duality is non-duality and it and it's right here and now actually even 
it supports duality actually, and it and it embraces it, and it sees to the that the good guys are stronger actually, and will do win and end. Shambhala comes, and mm. uh, and uh, everything is good. Uh, but um, we can simulate it to the extent of, you know, we shouldn't act out of rage or anger or hatred. And you know, these nonviolent, you know, it's very obviously, you know, Barr and Trump, crazy people on the far right who are doing the make doubling down and making it even mm-hmm. worse for themselves in the long run. They are trying to pretend that these peaceful justice pe- protesters are violent. Yeah. And uh, they're trying to frame them, actually. And uh, I just read today that it was revealed, there's, and there's media, you can find it. It was revealed that the guy in the first protest in Minneapolis who started smashing windows was a white supremacist guy carrying mm-hmm. an umbrella and started smashing windows dressed in black. I saw that, yeah. To try to pretend he was one of them. So yeah. that's the agent provocateur strategy yeah. Yeah. that the Absolutely. oppressor will use to try to de- take away the moral high ground from the nonviolent protester yeah. because actually the nonviolent one is more powerful because it appeals to human beings' hearts. And human being, even the bad guys, ultimately are actually even gentle. Mm, yeah, the gentleness yeah, is yeah. in the heart of even the worst bad guy. You mm. know, if I, I read Mary Trump's book, word for word. Oh, yeah. And that poor man who is now a definite evildoer in his behavior, but he's a little shriveled up little three-year-old who's just frightened of the world yeah, and yeah. trying to bully his way out of his fear. And he's a miserable wretch in there, you know, like, and so he really is a, a, a worthy. He worthy actually wretch. said last night, nobody likes me. Yeah, that's it. That's the three-year-old. That's the I mean, it's a th- yeah, three-year-old is crazy. And, you know, you get the detail because she's a psychologist. Mm. And she she knows the, she knows the drama of the broken mother, and the and the quite vicious a little bit you know Nazi you know his father was a card carrying member of Nazi party here in the U.S. and a Nazi like grandfather who kept rebuffing these children whose yeah, mother right, was broken right. yeah, yeah. at two and a half years old and the older yeah. sister was not really capable of embracing them yeah and it was really terrible yeah. I mean it's a family story is truly yeah. terrible so uh, Which, back back to yeah, uh, yeah. Ramdas Smith College and you <laughs> fell in love with him again yeah, and then yeah, let's sure. move along from from there yeah sure well there's nothing much to move then then I'm because my life. From that time, in, in, in luckily I, there was a little bliss bubble with Nina and the children mm. at the Dalai Lama, but mm. then I was having to make my way as a young professor in a in a world that doesn't really teach the Dharma in the college, no. and yet I had to kind of do that. I couldn't not do that. On the other hand, but I did it in the in the in actually interesting way that you have to do in academia, where you can't you don't proselytize. And actually, I I really don't. And luckily, Dalai Lama doesn't. He said the other day in the David Bohm movie, which I loved, and he has he always says that, but he said it in a very very good way, you know, very very straight on way. You can't miss it, not just a hint. He said, in all my life, I have never taught Buddhism to people in general with a wish or an intention to make them Buddhists. Yeah, yeah. Because he believes that this new age that we have already, we are already in is such that people should share the jewels and the treasures of their traditions with others who are not natural members of that tradition 
only with the view of them helping them find the same treasures in their own tradition and not with some denominational conversion competition. Mm. And he has implored the Christians and the Muslims and the Hindus and promised from the Buddhist side that, and, and some of them have agreed with that, but unfortunately some are into converting other people. Yeah, right. Uh, by and the way, you mentioned a, a movie, uh, Bob, that uh, uh, you went over oh, yeah. quickly, the uh, David... Oh yeah. oh, yeah, there's a wonderful film that is still viewable online, I think, that, because they had to premiere it all online, and it's still viewable in some way called Infinite Potential, Infinite which Potential. is about the wonderful physicist called David Bohm. How do you spell his last name? B-O-H-M, okay. who was the prize pupil of Oppenheimer, uh-huh. you know, the A-bomb guy yeah. uh, at Berkeley and got his PhD and all that. But once he's, his interpretation of the quantum world was that it leaves a room for mind and spirit, then Oppenheimer and these people purposely blackballed him and they didn't even argue with him because his arguments, mathematics and physicists' arguments were irrefutable that the real quantum formulas and everything proves that the observer's mind is a physical force, if super subtle. And therefore, you can't be a physicist without dealing with the mind. And, uh, and they, didn't, they couldn't answer that in physicist's terms except by dogma, so they just ignored him. Anyway, that great movie was made about him, and he was a friend of both Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti, mm. and the Dalai Lama, and therefore, the Dal and Krishnamurti has pa- that one. Has, that Krishnamurti has passed. So he, they showed some archival thing of his dialogues oh. with Krishnamurti, and they showed some. And then they had the live Dalai Lama make some comments about his mm. friend, David Bohm, who actually I also had some dinners with David, Mister and Mrs. Bohm, and His Holiness, and attended on some of their conversations, mm, which were wow, which were really amazing. fun and wow, really great, amazing. actually. Yeah, and we'll show we'll uh, link all this up. By the way, everybody, you'll get a chance in the show notes on the, on my rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Okay, so now we're gonna we're gonna okay. go to uh, from we're gonna jump to when <laughs> I started talking to you and saying, yeah. Bob, somehow you got to come out to Maui. Oh, Ramdas would goodness. love to see you, and you were like, God, that would be so great. We got to make it happen. So a few years ago, we did make it happen, and yes. you came out a couple of times and. Yeah, what did you? So you had not seen Ramdas in a very long time when you first no, came not to for Maui. Quite a, that's right, and uh, it wasn't just me. Also, it was Nina, and Nina had yes, some that's right. quite a, a, a different, uh, or in, she had an interim thing when she was at Milbrook and so forth with Ramdas, and she knew him in a different way, and he knew her in a different way, and. Um, a little bit, and it was wonderful that they had that meeting as well. I think he he enjoyed it, and she enjoyed it very very much, and um, and you know we became Ramdas groupies too, like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, Krishna Das was also a big part of it because yeah, you know I do feel he's kind of you know he really carries Maharaji in his heart in a special mm-hmm. way too, mm-hmm. as do you, you know. So you and you became a part of it, you know. And it's, uh, I, I kind of felt like I, I met Maharaji because, you know, I don't feel personally, the way I understand non-duality, I don't feel that these people leave, actually. They just leave a body when it's no longer suitably, a suitable instrument as far as they're concerned. But they remain around and they can incarnate in other bodies if they wish, or they can just stay in a field form 
that other people can't necessarily right away perceive as a body, but they can contact them spiritually at any time. You know, you know, there's a great Indian uh, master of philosophy, you know, non-dual philosophy, and also tantra, because tantra and non-duality are always completely, you know, completely inextricably entwined. Mm. And uh, because tantra is a complete expression of non-duality, and um, and so um, who's he that? Chandrakirti was his name. Chandrakirti, right? He's known to have lived because of writings and and recordings and his abbacies of different important monasteries in the seventh century. Although old Indian dating is a little vague, you know, in the in the Buddhist history, but he claimed in his own writing that he received tantric initiation from Nagarjuna, who's known through writings to have lived around second, first century. And um, although the Buddhists say he lived 600 years actually, and, and they all of them say that. And um, Westerners won't believe it, you know. Mm. And, uh, but it doesn't matter whether he was in the physical body or not, I'm sure he initiated Chandrakirti in the seventh century without fail. And he could initiate me if I was as pure as Chandrakirti, if I had pure <laughs> vision. Still, mm. I'm sure Nagarjuna could, or Chandrakirti could, because as people reach a certain level where they're completely conscious, not only of ultimate reality as if it was something apart from, fundamental to, but apart from the relational illusory reality, but because it is what illusory reality is made of, actually. And so they can manifest whatsoever they think is useful to whomsoever needs that. And I, I consider Maharaji like, 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 like uh, Larry uh, uh, says about... Larry uh, Brilliant, uh, yeah. Yeah, Larry Brilliant says about... Um, Kamapa saying about Neem Karoli yeah. Baba, it's a Buddha, just a Buddha. Don't give me something about yeah. some Swami. Buddha, yeah. Buddha. Buddha. No, he said Buddha. He said recall. Buddha, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I believe that myself. I feel that way too. Mm. And um, totally, you know, Nirmanakaya, mm. what, what, what I was angry with, Geshe Wangho, about with the, my guru, you know, my first guru, uh, you know, about the Nirmanakaya because he was it wasn't stopping Bangladesh, you know, at that time. Um, you know, Nirmanakaya is inconceivable and miraculous for sure. No question in my mind nowadays. Mm. Mm. You know, uh, I don't I don't know if Krishnas ever uh, told you this story. I'm sure you've heard it because you've done so many workshops together. And no, I know but tell, he tell, it tell. Over. But, but he and I, he, he had a bad knee and I helped him get over to the ashram. It was just me and him and Maharaji and a translator. And and he yeah, he walked around with a limp and he looked back at, at, uh, at Krishna Das and he smiled and he came back and sat down and said, how are you doing now? Okay? You know, and Krishna Das, of course, all the pain left and all of that. But the real, the story <laughs> is... Uh, Krishnas had a diary there, and he had written some stuff from the Mahamudra, and Maharaji asked it to be uh, translated. Uh, oh, yes, yes. And he said, Teek, yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> this is right on. And then he flipped the page, and there was a picture of him, and he said to us, so who's that? And we were like, well, you know, yeah, you're very <laughs> jokey, it's you. And he goes, nay, Buddha. <laughs> and you know the integration of many, many of us from the friends that you know, Danny Goldman uh, and, and Krishna Das, and, and many, many of us have taken teachings from uh, Tibetans in particular 
over yes, these yes. many years. In fact, they're the ones, uh, you know, he, he was instrumental in me meeting uh, Kalu Rinpoche while I was with him. Oh, Maharaji in India, sure, sure. yeah. So, yeah. so that that combination is very much of who we are as well. So of it's course. a very, very uh, interesting, which is why we have you know you guys are family to us. You know, it's That's just a, an amazing thing. Uh, so now you know, igualmente, as they say. Yes, igualmente. Yeah, and I'll tell you one thing though. You know, before we got on, you, you we, I said, yeah, we talked to, about Ramdas a little bit, and you said. Yeah, the first Jewish saint. Isn't that incredible? And I tell you, Ramdas would be turning over now going. <laughs> no, I didn't say Jewish. I said Hindu. Hindu, Hindu, right. Hindu. We have, we have Jubus and then we have Hindus, you know. Yeah. Remember, and you remember how Ramdas was upset because all his friends are Buddhist? Yeah. And Hindu and he wants to have a soul. Yeah. And, he think, and his other Buddhist friends said, you're not allowed to have a soul. You can't have a soul. But but the Dalai Lama thinks you can have a soul, and I think so. And, How does the and, Dalai Lama put that? That's not something I'm aware of. Oh, definitely. Um, actually, I, I I don't mean to claim anything except maybe just I'm a I don't know what I'm some kind of cipher or or or, or cosmic sponge or brainwashed. But I got <laughs> I reached a point a few years ago, uh, maybe eight, 10 years ago in teaching and around that I was tired of this thing of no soul, translating anatma as soullessness. Mm. And uh, really where it's really is selflessness, you know. And yeah. so then I realized that in order to explain in the Tantrayana, but it's still, it's even there in the Theravada, which is a dualistic form of Buddhism, it's still there. In what they call Chitta-Santana, they don't use the word indestructible bindu, akshara bindu, which is the word they use in Tantra. But they use the word chitta-santana, continuum of, of mind or spirit. And uh, because they have to have something subtle that carries an individual person, while as long as they still erroneously think that they're ultimately only an individual, rather than relatively an individual and ultimately one with everything. But as long as they don't know that oneness with everything, they relatively go. And then that there's a subtle form of that goes from death to rebirth, which is not the core sense brain, sensory brain form with the sensory memories of the sensory experiences of our waking time, but rather the in the imprint in the super subtle, uh, uh, like almost like I consider it like a spiritual DNA, mental mm. DNA. Mm. But it's not non it's not non-physical. It is, it, or rather, it's not disconnected with, with the super subtle physical, like sub-quantum energy flow that's there without atoms. You know, super subtle, you know, the one, the one where of the observer affecting what's observed, so transcending reality of objectivity, where quantum meets uh, Buddhist and, and uh, Vedanta philosophy. Yeah. And so... And so um, uh, and so uh, I said, I, I wanted to be able to use the word. So I started using it, talking about a selfless soul. Mm. And I started saying that, um, that you know, there are expressions in, in some sutras where not only there's no soul, jiva, which, you would, which really better translate jiva than, than atma, but there's no jiva. But also in those same ones, there's no hand, there's no eye, no ear, no nose. There's no everything, you know. And there's a certain meaning for that. So in other words, when it's no, 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 everything gets included. 
But in the relative sense, the only thing that's known is Atma, used particularly in the sense of the small personality self. Yeah, yeah. Mini me, I call it. Yeah, yeah. Me, me, and I, and mine, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, therefore, as long as one realizes that the soul is not a fixed barcode of some sort of ultimate separate thing that never changes, if you realize that your identity is always changing, it's a continuum and it's affected mm. by what you do at the coarser levels of identity, then the soul becomes the, where your genetic, evolutionary karmic genetic stream is carried until you become a Buddha. And, uh, and that's what carries the imprint of your realizations, your insight, your generosity, or your stinginess, your evil, your confusion is carried from life to life by that. And that's mm. definitely fits our definition of soul, mm. although not the definition of somebody's idea of a fixed identity soul. Right. That right. won't wash from Yeah, well, Ramdas, he was right there with that. Uh, the, the most fun thing, though, he'd be up on that stage and uh, he'd be with you or Sharon or Joseph or Jack or Lama Suridas, whoever, and uh, he would start talking about soul land or something. And then as he said the word soul, he'd sneakily look over at whoever Buddhist was, you know, and got this sly grin and, and they would go, it's okay, it's okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> it was so well, wonderful. Well, well, the thing is that when I, when, when I said I started doing that, and then I had a, went to, I, I was in Dharamsala and I went to teaching with Dalai Lama and he just threw out, oh yeah, we can use soul. Really? Yeah, oh we can use that. And he didn't go with just very hedging it around the way I just did with the, all the qualification, but he yeah. would have. I yeah. had pressed it. So I was thrilled to have that also ratifying that what I was planning, to, what I was doing there, you know. Mm. And that mm. has to do, and that has to do, you see, that in Buddhism, like your Theravada Buddhist person wouldn't even know that. And uh, even some regular, some types of Mahayana type would not. Because that really, they don't really unpack the idea of the super subtle mind, and therefore, which is mm. what then can be used to explain the rebirth process uh, in a technical sort of scientific way, mm. if that's kept esoteric throughout most of Buddhist history, because if that was generally known by people, then a lot of people in Asia of those days who didn't have quantum physics and so on as a popularly known thing yeah, and yeah. weren't actually already nihilists in large numbers like they are, they would transfer a their own rigid identity habit onto a feeling of constriction that they have in their heart chakra. Mm. And it would mm. be not easy to help them embrace op total openness and total self-surrender that is required mm. to discover Brahma Nirvana or Shunyata Nirvana, or whatever you want to call it, you know? Yeah. Well, you now, to, yeah. The, you know, the, the, what the Zen people call the great death. Right. You know, or the spiritual yes. death where you give it up, you know, completely. Yeah. Well, this brings us to, uh, I did want to spend a little bit of time uh, on this uh, podcast with you. Uh, and, and this is a good segue. Uh, Restriction of the heart chakra. Boy, yeah. we are uh, collectively dealing with uh, a big run on that restriction as yeah, a result of the fear and chaos and uh, yeah. and all of it. Uh, yeah. in, in the in the big picture, yeah, give us a little bit of your your take on that, and all sure. the way to what are the people need some real 
help. Sure. Well, this is the Buddha's great scientific discovery, actually. And it, it mirrors the discovery within the Upanishadic tradition, which then is like the most more conservative side of that, that wave that happened in the middle of the first millennium before the common era, based you know, on Buddha and Mahaviras and these, these great, uh, great yogis' discovery of the total openness of the self. And... Um, uh, you know the total openness of the heart, which 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 to which to understand which the whole the 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 the, the knot in the heart chakra has to open, mm-hmm. which normally, and for normal people, only opens at death, actually, and that is and it is because of its opening at the normal person's death that the normal person then leaves the body, but these great yogis developed the ability to open that while remaining alive. Although they could have left the body, but they still remain connected to that body by, but not not involuntarily connected, but voluntarily connected because there's some further use of it, of of finding embedding that non-dual total openness in life. So, in other words, they become non-dual about death and life. So they're the what I, I like to call them. They're the dying live, mm-hmm. not the living dead. But the dying life, <laughs> dying life. The yeah. great saint is like that. That's why they can do these miracles, and they they have this tremendous detachment and so forth, and etc. So, so I'm saying, at the moment, of course, nobody's saying that everybody on the planet is going to become a Buddha, in their own awareness. In a way, they all have a nature of that, but they're not going to necessarily do that in all their awareness. However, if you take a, the gradient from the really rigidly knotted heart chakra connected to the very strong egotism and ego grasping of it's just me i'm the only one in the world you know like i'm it's only me you know i'm it i'm the whole thing uh in a very tight closed way which then also leads that person to be very very frightened because then they're scared of everything else which is not them and they're surrounded by a not them that is so much bigger than they are that they're automatically tense and uptight, as we would say. And polarize so, all so, the way. Yes. So, so the process of doing that is not like an explosion in your heart because that would just kill you. It's not like slicing through a Gordian knot in a split second because that would also <laughs> remove yours from your own nervous system. It would not be healthy. It's a much more subtle bit by bit dismantling of the rigidity of your identity and your ego sense. It's not also a complete destruction of your ego sense as some people wrongly think if you're Buddhist or Hindu, you're supposed to have no ego. That's nonsense. You discover that what ego is, is a conceptual way of organizing the processes of your life, which are this complex thing, and actually keeping them really open and loving and all that but then being responsible, then the ego is uh, the narrative of where you then are a loving being, an open being, a selfless being, but you're still there responsibly to help others and so on. Yeah. So, so, so there's, this, there's this gradation. And so, for example, religious fanaticism, sexism, racism, Gen, you know, gen, you know, uh, only males are really alive. You know, forget it. You know, <laughs> uh, type of things, so sexism, and for the other ones are lesser. You know, 
and that's I'm a male, you know, and then rigid holding in the chakra of the of the of the heart chakra, that sense of identity. Rigid race thing. Uh, you know, I'm just a, even they're so delusory when they say white, I my latest is that there are no whites, they're only pinks. Mm-hmm. All white people are just pink, even usually somewhat blotchy pink in search <laughs> of a tan, actually. <laughs> There's no such white, you know, yeah. but never mind that. But anyway, you know, or even you can have black racism because we're so superior and those white pinkies, they can't dance, you know. Mm. And then you have you can have yellow racism, all those whites and blacks are nothing. And then the reds are hard to find, the native people, and they can be racist too. So in other words, you can, whatever you rigidly wrap your identity around, or even, which all based on the false idea that there is any identity at all. Because identity means something that's always the same and never changes. So nothing individual, personal, is always the same and never changes. The universal connectedness to all individuals is in a maybe that's all the same and never changes, but it's infinite. And so even the good, the good individual who can somehow keep connected, being responsibly living non-dually, but responsible part of a community, uh, uh, which is, you know, sounds ambiguous. It sounds contradictory, but actually it's only ambiguous and requires a tolerance of a high level of tolerance of ambiguity to manage that, mm. which the great saints and the great teachers all had, you know, like where, you know, where like Buddha himself said at the morning of his enlightenment, he said, wow, you know, I know everything now, totally. And it's so great, you know, Nirvana, <laughs> guys, here it is, the doorway to Nirvana. But you know what? Unfortunately, although I can make some statements, that are in the general area, I can't really explain it to you because you can't understand it just by having a formula about it. You know, you have to, you you know, all formulas fall short of this miraculous, brilliant, blissful reality that is the world, but the real world. But uh, I can help you with getting rid of some blocks to your ability to experiencing it because you are it too. And so that's all I can do. I can't really explain it to you. Mm. you know? so, so that's beautiful ambiguity. It's inexpressible, but I'm going to keep talking because I can give you some negations like, like anatma or paramaatma. Paramaatma not being the petty little atma, right? Yes. You, those are contradictory. You see those things. So there's two ways of saying it as a negation or as a transcendence. You know? yeah. But there's, they're really the same. So, 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 uh, so that's the thing. So therefore, this psychology, and that is why meditation directed in that way, in other words, once the meditator has some idea that, and, of having looked within and having discovered that the unfindability of a fixed core in there, only, the only thing that seems fixed is the fact that they keep the masks keep falling off when you really become one-pointed toward mindful inter- interiorization. And, and when people meditate in that way, then the, the lesser levels of identity, like my identity as a male, my identity as a speaker of English, my identity as an American or a Russian or an Indian, my identity as Jewish, my identity as Goyam, my identity as an Indian, as a black, all of, all of these things will peel away before the big one comes, 
which is my identity as alive versus dead as as whatever you know and then no identity and also no identity of no and, and also then the, the final one being my identity of no identity falls off and I've got to act to be responsible for some sort of participation within this glory of non-duality, whether it's, it's divine or Buddha, or whatever it is. Mm. I have to be I have to be responsible to my relative being, and then that's where tantra comes in, is creating the beautiful, loving, divine relative being. You know, yeah, both yeah. either either Shaiva tantra yeah. or Buddhist or Vaishnava tantra or Shakti tantra, whatever yes. kind. That's actually where it begins. Is from that realization of no identity but that but that there's no identity of no identity that would be simply separation and that would not be the ultimate so being one and interconnected with it all there's there is no identity of non-identity so therefore the non-identity fits beautifully with the most loving possible wonderful Saint Ramdas identity, sweetly mm-hmm. smiling, sweetly yeah. smiling through the tears. Yeah, and he he and would the pain. You know, and he would. Uh, this is an interesting point because we talk. We're moving back to the relative, mm-hmm. right? We are yeah. here in this world. We do need. He would say, we need to take action. Taking no action relative to social justice, for instance, right. means yeah. you're taking big action. That's right. And he would say that doesn't mean you have to wait until the moment that you are a living Buddha. You have we work on ourselves uh, on a day-to-day basis and yet we take that action. It is not always going to be right action because we carry with us anger, we carry with us projections of how it should be. And uh this is when we and certainly when we talk about racism and we talk about uh, what happened with George Floyd and, and the outburst that has gone on and every, you know, white people perhaps waking up uh, in a way that they haven't woken up, you know, talk about awoken. Uh, mm-hmm. This is still something that uh, I know that Ramdas talked about because we found these incredible uh, videos of a thing he did called Reaching Out, which went on television in the late 80s, where he sat around and talked with indigenous people, Latino, Latino people, and uh, oh, African-American. Huh? Great, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're integrating that. We're trying to figure out how we can share it with people and so on. But wow. very much in it is... The, this thing of action, this thing of education, of understanding. We have not sat, we have not lived in the boots of people on the ground yes. who have gotten what uh, Makad Brooks, who's a, a wonderful uh, actor and social activist, uh, said to me, at some point, every black child gets told the story. I, I think he put it in other ways. But the story is... You now, when you leave this house, you have the potential to be accosted uh, either by uh, white people who hate you or by the police, and here's how to act. They get the whole narrative as, yes. a, you know, as soon as they can sure. understand anything. We cannot sure. understand this. Mm-hmm. This, is not, this is not experiential in any way uh, uh, possible. So mm-hmm. the action, so, I mean, Bob, you know, we've been getting, we've been doing stuff and trying to educate ourselves and integrate and love, serve, remember, mm-hmm. um, inclusion and diversity right. and, and all right. of it, you know, which everybody is, is doing now because they're waking up a little bit. 
but uh, we there's a little bit of pushback with the spiritual community. Ramdas would say it's all one. So all of us matter and so on. It is such, to me, a bypass and an up level, but I'm I'm working on it because I'm sure that's something that I have said myself in some other way, in some other, you know, past. Right, right. And so, yeah, I think that's an important thing for us to recognize in terms of the relative – the relative reality that we are in a body and we need to take action, no? Yes. And uh, I do love, though, and I love the, I'm very fond of the form of the Kala Chakra Buddha. Mm. Explain that has, out a little bit because people don't. Well, the, the Wheel of Time, you know, an, an, an anciently esoteric form of Buddha, of, of, uh, of Anaxel Yoga Tantra, as it is called, uh, which is considered sort of the most uh, connected to history and to action in time. Mm. And his front phase, of the male one is black and his right face is red and his left face is white hmm. and his back face is yellow and his partner is golden with her front face yellow, back face green, black, very dark green, like black green, and then the same red and white on the two sides. She has also four faces. And they're really also considered one being. They're, they're, a, they're an androgynous being, actually. So when you meditate, that form, you are meditating yourself as both sides of a of a united, a blissfully united couple. It's it's very far out, neurologically speaking, let's say. But what is really wonderful about it as a hopeful thing, you know, is that there you are all of these colors, you know, in as as faces of one being, if you follow. Mm. And of course, you know, you could and actually there are forms where it's a thousand faces with all kinds of pastel interconnected colors. So it's inhabiting, you know, all of these forms and showing their complete ultimate equality, but even relative interconnectedness. So there's no superior one or another. Each one is fitted for different environments. That's all. That's how they got to be the different complexions, you know, because of different environments. So I love that. That's a sort of just a little hint of some sort of very, very advanced level that the yogi and yogini who really decide to become, you know, to try to go all the way with it, they they can use, you know, they can use that level. And in the meantime, you know, the the I don't think we should ever say never. In other words, I for example, I mean unfortunately I never had this ability, but not by because of any you know, thing, but just I just never got a chance. Uh, if a white person would go and live in a black country and be of the rare face, the rare pink face that is bopping around there, mm. and then one will run into some people who will be annoyed from colonialism or whatever, and one will begin to feel like a kind of outcast and a little bit paranoid. And, you know, we could certainly learn it, you know, and we will be doing that, I believe, in the future, as things become more equal. And this, of course, is the, is the whole Trump, Reagan through Trump phenomenon. It's, this came out in the open of the, you know, the white, so-called white, pink majority losing its majority status yeah. to people of multiple colors, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and then the big freakout has to do with that, of them not willing to embrace the equality. 
that is in our through line. You know, everyone, people, some people who get too left and too radical, they go like, it's like, they get too angry. And then they say, oh, it's always been criminal from the beginning. America was built on a genocide and et cetera, et cetera. Well, oh, yes, that's true. But luckily we failed in the genocide as they always will fail. And the native people are still here. And they are, you know, their saints are compassionate toward us. Their non-saints are annoyed with us. But they're still here, and they will always still be here. And the, and the uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the blacks are here, and there's more of them coming. And the yellows have arrived, and they're going to be in here in numbers, too. You know, it's kind of significant that these white race supremacists who are having a freak out right now because they're losing, because they're so incompetent, are choosing at this as a moment to somehow act like it's justified now to attack the Chinese. Sure, of course, we don't like the Communist Party, we, and, and, no, and nobody likes dictatorships, and that's against our code, right? But meanwhile, that guy, our guy wants to be a dictator, a white dictator. <laughs> Just pathetically self-contradictory and confused, these people. But they're picking that time to attack them, which we mm. mustn't do, actually. Yeah, we yeah. can criticize their bad business practices and their espionage, but and they're robbing copyrights. But we, the Chinese people, helped. They built the railroad. You know, they're part of America from hundreds of years, and they're also going to be part of America mm. and part of the world. The world is a multiracial world, yeah. and our through line yeah. of Thomas Jefferson, who never gets credit. Because he would have, he fell in love with Sally Hemings, and then he fathered children by her, and they and they don't really honor the whoever the Jefferson heirs are. They're not really meeting with the Hemings, I think. Yeah, they will eventually, I'm sure, but they don't have a yearly jamboree bringing in the Hemings, which they will, they should start doing. But point is, he he submitted bills into the Virginia legislature before the United States existed twice to liberate slaves which would failed, of course. And then he couldn't just liberate his own, they'd be captured by other people. And after that, and then, and then he put all our equal, he put that in the, in the Declaration of Independence. And the uh, rights of man, he was influenced by the French uh, theories, you know. And, uh, and then he, of course, he, you know, he couldn't, uh, he, he was ahead of his time. But that through line is a new beginning there of our racists, genociding people. So I don't think we should, I don't accept that we never can understand living in it like you're in an enemy country or in a war zone. It is a horrible thing, of course, and we can understand it. And, uh, you know, we can develop greater empathy. We can meditate to develop empathy. You know, we can do, my, we can do Vulcan mind transmissions <laughs> with someone willing to share their <laughs> mind with us. We can, and actually when you read uh, uh, James, you know James uh, Wright. You know uh, you can you can feel those feelings. You you see he he makes it happen to your mind if mm. you're a sensitive person. And mm. so we shouldn't go extreme. The point is we'll get there slowly and bit by bit. We won't pretend to be beyond where we are, but we also won't great never nevers we won't buy the i don't i don't buy the never nevers yeah yeah so you talk about through line and boy uh, all i can think about of course the through line through uh, dr king but most presently for me is john lewis of course he just yeah. passed and and i i did a, a 
uh, a podcast uh, in, in honor of him with a friend of mine, Danny Goldberg. Good who, for you. Yeah, Good who for was you. just so knowledgeable and of the history and and of the the uh, civil rights movement. But when the more I dug into it, Bob, talk about. You mentioned that Native Americans, their saints, so-called saints, you know, uh, that are still compassionate towards us. Yeah, and you are. look at this man was nothing but a saint, John That's Lewis. Totally. Nothing, sure. fearless, and full of love. It, it, it gave more hope uh, to me uh, than anything that I've experienced in a long time in in this regard. So. That's really great. I know I really love the guy, and he wouldn't go to the inauguration. Yeah, and I admire that. I admire that. Mm. You I know, and, and when he went to uh, when uh, Obama got inaugurated, he was there, and he went up to. He had tears in his eyes when he went up to sure. embrace Obama, and Obama turned to him and said, "John, you did this." That's nice, isn't that? You did this. You know, Jesse so. Jackson was also weeping. Yeah. Yeah, no. no, absolutely. Well, many of us were at that time. Well, exactly. we're we're at the end of our uh, time here, Bob. I want to thank you, okay. thank you, thank you. I yeah, get. And um, by the way, everybody out there who's listening, uh, we are going to have this virtual retreat at the end of August, August twenty eighth through thirtieth, uh, with Krishna Das, with Bob, okay. and with so Annie Lamott. We, Annie we, Lamott, we, your your guru, is we, coming back. <laughs> I remember that, oh, I that whole it. thing. <laughs> do we have a? Do we have another minute? Can I take one t- tiny Absolutely. little? Absolutely. Add a meditation, because of something people can do Absolutely. in the time of Please. the thing, and that is that you meditate, and what you do is you practice this, what's known as mother recognition. And you know, if you're out in the street, and you're not black. But even if you are black too, but you sit there and you can now and then meditate, mother recognition. And what that means is, although you may not yet have a belief that you had many previous lives, in fact, beginninglessly infinite previous lives, just pretend that for the moment you've been everywhere and done everything in many infinite past lives. So so what it might feel like, simulate that feeling. And the minute you do, you will also realize that every you could simulate the feeling that everybody else has been everywhere in infinite previously past lives. And then you can just sort of intellectually at first say to yourself, well, then I've been, everybody else has at some time or another been my mother in some previous life. In that not only all is in human form, in different animals, different mammals, sometimes maybe she just laid me as an egg, <laughs> depending mm-hmm. on what kind of animal she was, but they've all been my mother. And actually everyone in the infinite past, they've all been my human mother. So just meditate that because that's where you mirror your first person you mirror and mirrors you as your mother, right? And you just, may, by meditating that and then thinking of, oh, I hate that person, that face of the, I see on TV, the mean, nasty blue meanies who are beating me up and throwing tear gas and sprays, pepper spraying me. But actually in a previous life, they were my mother. They just don't know it. My fellow members of other races here with me have, were my mothers in previous life. We, we were in their race. They were in my race. It was all interwoven like that. And so just now and then meditate the mother recognition meditation and try to see the motherly expression 
there's always somewhere some possibility in them, even the meanest person when they look at someone they love and then realize that is the potential in that face, even if you're angry with that face at the moment. So that's that's called the, it's the mm. first step of developing what they call universal compassion. But the first step is to, in other words, find a sense of kinship with all beings. The Lakota have this in their heat lodge, sweat lodge ceremony where they say, Oyatsuke Miyasun, which means all beings are my relatives. So it's that meditation. Mm. Even you could maybe look that up and blame mm, yeah, your speak. Yeah. Oyatsuke Miyasun. And this there's no this is beyond race this is beyond color because everybody has a mother correct exactly exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly um i do want to say one other thing though uh mm -hmm. yes please uh and that's uh bob has headed up uh, tibet house in new york for a long time and we're okay. going to put a uh a link there to tibet house and uh they could uh, tibet house Oh, thank you. Tibet to House get a US. little bit of help, anybody who's willing to help uh, keep Tibet House going. And, and yeah. the, they, they put on Actually, fantastic programs. I, the way that they support His Holiness and the Tibetan people it, is phenomenal. It's, it's another genocide going on against them out there, over there. And so any bit of their keeping their culture alive, which is Tibet House's role, we're not making political activism, but cultural. It's really helpful. I've even shamelessly re requested a birthday present on Facebook oh, yeah. birth August 3rd. So five bucks, it doesn't matter, 10 bucks, three bucks, Bernie Sanders style, any little bit as a, as a, they can put in the birthday kitty and it'll be matched because it's what we have a matching grant from some generous person mm. and mm. anonymous. But, uh, you know, it's this time when we're trying to do that to keep our staff and our, 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 pro our, our programs alive yeah. During this time of total shutdown, you know, mm -hmm. where which mm -hmm. we've been. So thank is you it, so much it, for mentioning that. Yeah, and just let, uh, this is important too. Is, is it uh, a uh, nonprofit? I think it yes, is. Yes, yes, yeah. of course. So anybody CP. donating, it's it's tax. Uh, that's tax right. Tibethouse.us. Yeah. Okay, Red that's great. Everybody yeah, should yeah. know that. Again, thank you so much, everybody. The thank links you. are all going to be in there, and uh, thank you. You can find out more about Tibet House, more about Bob. We've mentioned the the David Bohm movie and uh, whatever and, and whatever else. And and again, you can you can uh, the end of the month of uh, August on the twenty eighth, Bob will be there. Annie Lamott, Krishna Das, myself, Duncan Trussell. Uh, All right. Uh, uh, um, do you know uh, Valerie Kaur? Do you know who that is, Bob? No, I don't. Oh, okay. You you make a point at picking up her book, No uh, See No Stranger. Uh, fantastic. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, fantastic. Valerie, well, how do you spell the last name? Kaur? K A U R. Valerie Kaur. She's a sick oh, Kaur. Okay. person. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. I yeah. love good Yes. Okay. Oh, <laughs> All right, everybody. Good we'll enough. see you next week on Mind Rolling. Okay. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Love y'all. Thank you. Love Thank you, you Raga. Love you. Love you, Raga. <laughs> Thank you so much. All the best.